The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Certainly. Father, I wanted to talk about a topic tonight that is very pertinent and very important, and that is this idea of Catholic schooling and the Catholic education of children. We have a, uh, a list of questions here that I've compiled from our, our viewers in regards to this topic. But before we get into some of the particulars, Father, I would like to just ask you in general, could you speak a few words on the, the importance of Catholic education and what exactly is meant by Catholic education? And, and also, how, how does this idea of Catholic education tie in with schooling in particular. Could you speak a few words on that idea, Father? Well, the whole idea of education comes back, comes down from the Greeks and, and before the Greeks, but they certainly emphasize that. The, the idea of the word education is actually to lead out, okay? And the sense of it was, to the idea is that we are born with innate ideas and understandings, and education is meant to bring that out of us. Um, that is a false idea, of course. The true idea of education looks at education uh, as leading out of darkness into, into light, and light being knowledge and understanding. Right? And so the idea is to form the human mind. Our, our minds uh, are a tabula rasa, as St. Thomas Aquinas and the scholastic uh, philosophers and theologians understood. We don't have innate ideas that we're born with. Um, we have to be taught. We have to learn. Uh, we learn from interacting with the world, uh, from the world around us. Uh, and uh, gradually, uh, we form ideas of reality and truth. And um, we, uh, we have to be educated in the sense that we have to learn. And in order to learn, generally, we have to be taught, okay? So it's not just a matter of uh, letting feral children uh, run around to whatever they personally find of interest at any given moment. It really is a matter, in terms of Catholic education, of guiding their minds, guiding their thoughts in the right direction. The ultimate goal, of course, is to form those who have faith and hope and charity, those who know God by faith, through true faith, and that is the, the Catholic faith, and to know and to place their hope in our Lord and to love to love our Lord, love, to love God. As our Lord said, the Father loves you because you love me. And so we have to teach them about our Lord Jesus Christ in the first place so that they can know who the Father is and know who the Holy Ghost is. They can know who the God, God uh, who created them is, the Blessed Trinity of Persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and they know that they are loved, and they are able to respond with love. So it's a matter of forming the conscience, too. 
So it's not just a matter of teaching them truth in the abstract. Uh, there's the moral dimension of giving them a, a, not only knowledge, but also love, forming the intellect and forming the will. Now, in the classical education idea, the first thing that our brains are made to, to do is to learn information, uh, to learn about reality and the reality that we encounter, encounter through our senses here in the world. We learn about these things, but our, our minds, because of the spiritual soul, take in these truths, and we learn these things in a very different way uh, from that of the animals, the mere animals who have no souls. <clears throat> we begin to enter into a deeper understanding of these things because of the use of reason. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas and the scholastics tell us that uh, uh, by the power of reason, we have the ability to understand things in their causes. That separates us from those who, the animals who have no immortal spiritual souls, <clears throat> that we can understand things in their causes. And you see this even in little children. As the power of uh, learning progresses in them, and they progress toward the age of reason, you see they're beginning to activate the ability to understand things in their causes. And when they reach the age of reason, their conscience then uh, becomes active. That's the what they what they call the practical reason, uh, practical judgment. Um, practical in the sense that it has to do with action of right and wrong, right? And um, this this is all a part of the educational process. The classical system, as I mentioned, which is not specifically Catholic, as it was developed before our Lord came into the world. But it is very, very attuned to our natural abilities. It says that we start with what they call the grammar phase. The grammar phase was simply a matter of giving the children information. This is when they learn their alphabet. This is the, the, when they learn to make, um, to, to make words, okay, to uh, uh, form syllables. And uh, this is when they learn their numbers. This is when they learn the mathematic facts of addition and subtraction and multiplication division. This is when the brain is forming very rapidly and they can take in these facts and they have all of this information, like, like a gigantic arsenal of learning, you know. And uh, hopefully this will whet their appetite. The more they learn, you'd like them to, to want to know more and more. And the next phase, of course, is not just to leave all that information. Now, these, these phases don't just stop one day and then start another phase. I mean, they, they grow gradually into each other. So they're not carefully delineated, closing that grammar phase and entering into the logic phase. But the next phase is the logic phase. And uh, that is when a young person, with all of the information that he has, can begin to uh, do some reasoning, can actually start drawing truths from the truths that he knows, make inferences. He can make deductions <clears throat> and inductions. He can begin to uh, almost express himself in, in syllogisms where he says, well, um, you know, Human beings have souls. Fred is a human being, so he must have a soul. And he begins to draw conclusions from, the, from what he knows by a reasoning process. This is called the logic phase. And he can, he can assess the value of these judgments. 
by using logic and the rules of logic uh, that he learns, he can determine the, the value of truth of drawing a conclusion. But that in itself does not end there, of course, because uh, the next phase after the grammar phase and the logic phase, where he first learns the facts and learns how to use them in a sense and reason with them, is the rhetorical phase. He has to learn rhetoric. And by that, he becomes empowered uh, not only to assess the value of other ideas and suggestions and judgments that are made, but he can actually uh, express his own thoughts and his own judgments. He can express them in such a way that uh, he is very clear and he can express himself in such a way that his thoughts are compelling. So he can begin making a case for things in terms of good and evil, right and wrong, truth and false, falsehood. And he, um, we, we say that when he has gone through this process of the grammar phase and the logic phase and the rhetoric phase, that he's actually, at that point, he's really well, well educated. I mean, that he's actually learned these things properly. He not only has the ability to, to know, he has the ability to think and to reason and to judge, and the ability to express these, put them all together and, and come to uh, um, the ability to actually act upon them in an intelligent, thoughtful, reasonable, and charitable way. This is ultimately what we're trying to do. Even pagans know this. They saw this uh, development of the mind over through these stages. Now, you have the trivium and the quadrivium, which I won't get into right now in the, in the classical education. But I, I want to leave that aside for the moment and just talk about what makes us Catholic, what makes this process Catholic. <clears throat> well, the pagan uh, classical system would focus on um, the true, the good, and the beautiful as it is in nature. <clears throat> and so, you know, we have the virtues. We have the natural moral virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. The four cardinal virtues, we call them. These are not necessarily supernatural virtues. Someone doesn't have to have any faith in God or even believe in the supernatural to think in terms of being prudent in what he does and says, um, so as to accomplish his purpose and not to accomplish the opposite, not to make things go wrong by doing something imprudent. So even an atheist could decide, I have to be prudent in the way I present this. I have to be prudent in the way I carry this out to accomplish my purpose, whatever it is, whether it's waging war or giving an alms to someone who's poor. <clears throat> Justice. Someone who uh, yeah, has no faith could actually say, well, justice is a matter of reason. I, I, I intend to be just in my judgments so that I'm not um, defrauding anybody. Uh, he can do that not out of love for God, as I say, he doesn't believe necessarily in God, but out of a sense of his own worth, say, I am a just man and I'm going to conduct myself as a just man. Um, so that that means that a someone who doesn't even believe in God can make a just judgment even while someone else who does believe in God, and might even be a Catholic, might even be a traditional Catholic, for whatever reason, doesn't make a just judgment. They can sin against justice, right? But uh, to that extent, I mean, we're looking at justice as a natural virtue. 
The same with uh, fortitude, bravery, you might say courage. There are many examples from antiquity of pagans, as, for example, Roman soldiers showing great courage and fortitude in the face of adversity. Temperance, not every atheist is a drunkard, right? So the, the fact is that they can do these things, they can practice these virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, but they can do them almost out of a certain pride in a sense that uh, this is my self-image, this is who I am, and this is what I have to do in order to have a good, happy life on earth. And so I must practice prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And they can practice these virtues, and by practicing them, they can actually make progress in them. Okay? These are, these are acquired virtues. We acquire them by our efforts. Okay? Far from that is the same virtue of prudence, the same virtue of justice, but now it is animated by faith and hope and charity, the supernatural virtues. These cannot be acquired by our own efforts. They have to be infused in the soul by God. He has to give us the supernatural virtue of faith, the supernatural virtue of hope, and the supernatural virtue of charity. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Read about that. And so suddenly now the motive for practicing prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance, suddenly the motive for acting in a prudent and just and brave and temperate way is love for God. Saying, I will practice these virtues in honor of God. And when I do practice them, and I, when I am just, and when I am prudent, I will attribute the good to God, not glorify myself, but glorify God. Suddenly, that changes everything. Because now the motivation as an act of love for God makes them supernaturally good. And not only can we acquire these virtues by working for, at them, but God also gives us grace to infuse those virtues, gives them an added supernatural power. And even raises them to a supernatural level, a supernatural virtue, a supernatural value even, that God rewards them. <clears throat> so this is a very far cry from those who have no faith, but just practice these virtues in order to get along well in the world and think well of themselves and want to be thought, thought well by others. Now it's a matter of divine charity motivating everything we do. And uh, God has a supernatural reward for that. This is what Catholic education is. Catholic education is meant not to teach the children so much about the natural virtues of the pagans who lived before us, but our focus is on the saints. We want the children to see, we want them to see the natural virtues, by all means, but we also want them to know these virtues as they are presented in the lives of the saints themselves, animated by a love for God. That's what we want to inspire the children in Catholic education. Mm -hmm. Father, I've heard before that uh, that education is primarily the forma primarily deals with the formation of one's conscience, and this this mm -hmm. seems to be uh, in agreement with with what you are saying here, because this idea it contrasts uh, an individual who is simply knowledgeable versus one that is well educated, and it seems mm -hmm. today that that many uh, students in our public schools and in the colleges they are simply knowledgeable. They never seem to get past this grammar phase of just obtaining obtaining knowledge and information. They never seem to make any kind of progression from that. And so would you say that this is true, that, that education is primar primarily deals with the formation of the conscience? Well, full education brings one to, yes, education of conscience. So that again, the virtues of faith, hope, and charity are there in the soul. 
I mean, really, when one is in the state of sanctifying grace, that means, necessarily, having faith and hope and charity as virtues in the soul. Then one is properly educated in the sense that the conscience is formed as a matter of right and wrong and orientation toward God. In our faith as creator, but also as redeemer, as father, as savior, and then sanctifier, Holy Ghost. Um, without that, the education never really achieved its ultimate purpose. It, you know, it, it is thwarted, it is stunted. There are many uh, people in history who were considered well-educated, brilliant minds, okay, great tacticians, uh, leaders who are leaders of nations, even empires, but they're very corrupt. I mean, you think of a man like Hitler. Was Hitler, uh, was Hitler dumb? Was he stupid? No. No one ever accused Hitler of being um, stupid. But he used what cleverness he had. I won't say intelligence. I will use whatever cleverness he had. He, he used that to destroy and to attack all that was good. Um, Hitler was a madman. He was an occultist, right? And he used the natural abilities that he had to attack what was true and good and beautiful. We know that. So this man was not educated in the real sense of the word. The same with Mao, the same with Stalin and all the rest of them. All of them have in common something. They think, that they think they're very, very, very smart. Smarter than anybody else. And they may well have been the smartest person in the room at any given moment. But the problem is even though they might have been smarter than just about anybody else, Stalin, for example, was more shrewd and more clever. And uh, what should I say? More um, ruthless than anybody else under him, Molotov and Beria and the rest of them. So he might have been superior to them. They might have looked up to him for this. <clears throat> but he wasn't as smart as he thought he was. All of That is true of all of them, too. They, they all seem to think that they were smarter than anybody else. They could control everyone else. They can dominate everybody else. But it's also true of them to say that they, none of them were as smart as he thought he was. You know, this, is, this is Satan's downfall. So these, these men were not educated in the sense that we, you and I speak of education as exalting, again, the transcendentals of a, a knowledge of the, what is true and a love for what is good and an appreciation for what is truly beautiful. They were not educated in that sense. But that's what education is directed toward, a knowledge of what is true, a love of what is good, and an appreciation truly for what is beautiful. You know, the enemy of, the, of Christ, the enemy of God, understands these things. He understands very well the, the centrality of education, how we form the minds, of the generation to come. I mean, Lenin said, give me one generation, give me one generation. And he thought he could control the history of the world. After that generation, he thought he would instill that generation with the ideas of Marxist, communist, Bolshevism, and so on. And he would alter the course of the world in that direction forever, in his own mind. He understood the importance of, of forming the minds of the young people. But you go back and you see the same, the same mentality. You look at John Dewey. 
Okay, John Dewey in the 1920s and 30s <clears throat> decided he, his, his educational theories would revolve around socialization. <clears throat> and what that meant was <clears throat> essentially breaking down the mind of the individual student, the idea of being an individual, and making that student, any student, all students, think always in terms of groupthink, that I am part of this group, always. And I must think in lockstep with the group. And I must be united with the group, always. He didn't want anyone thinking for himself. At the same time these ideas were put into, into play here in the United States of America, they were being put into effect in the Soviet Union. They failed miserably in the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union gave up that idea, actually, uh, because it basically paralyzed. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bolshevik idea, the socialist idea, the communist idea, was precisely what Dewey was saying. Take away the individuality of the, of the student and make him a part of a machine. So to that extent, Dewey's ideas worked perfectly well. But the problem was it also <clears throat> destroyed the industry, the initiative and, um, of, of the students and it really broke down their ability to think. And um, they, they had to, you know, the Soviets reward those who excel in production. And um, somebody in, in a Soviet system is considered well-educated if he can produce so many um, tractors, right? If he can produce so many parts of tractors, he's got to, work these quotas and get these out here. It's all production, production, production. Sort of like the common core system here in the United States of America is doing now. Training worker drones to just turn out things. They're, they're, they're not well educated at all. They're just given the information they need to accomplish a certain task. They're slotted in society in a certain way. And outside of that, they cannot think. Think again, George Orwell's 1984. This is what they're looking to produce now. But you look back and you see the words of uh, Nubius in the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita in the early 1800s, a leader, leader of the Masons in Italy. And his idea was, well, we have to seize control of the papacy to control the church, because we know we can't destroy the church. Many have tried and they have all failed. But they, he said, we're going to gain control of the church and use the church. We're going to hijack the church, essentially. And he mapped out a plan in order to have those who th at least think like Freemasons have no faith to go through the ranks in the church, rise through the seminaries, rise through the hierarchy, and eventually elect a man who would be a good Freemason. Even if he wasn't a Freemason, he would think like one. That's what they wanted. But he said, first of all, in order to accomplish this, Tom, he said, we're going to have to create a generation worthy of him. So he said, that's our job now. We have to begin, and the method was by education, to create a generation worthy of this, of this pope, this really anti-pope, okay? this Antichrist, you might say. So in a sense, we're saying that for the coming of the Antichrist, we have to create a generation worthy of him. And we see that happening right now, as we talked in our last program, forming children or preparing children for the Antichrist, right?
And so the idea of uh, the necessity of using education, the enemy knows that. When I say the enemy, I mean Satan especially, understands the importance of this. And he's been trying to gain control of the educational process everywhere. You look at Father John Becker again, uh, 19, in the 1950s, early 1950s. I mean, he was there in China as a missionary uh, when Mao Zedong took over with his communists. And what did he say? What did he describe? He described how the communists wanted to seize the minds of the young people and raise them as good communists. But he said they couldn't do it as long as they allowed the family to be united. Because the family unit in China was so strong. And this is, a, I mean, he's not talking about Catholic families, he's been, he's talking about just the natural structure of the, of the Chinese family, the Chinese society. And so he said the Chinese found out very early on they had to march the fathers away to a compound and hold them. And they had to march the mothers away to a compound and hold them separate from their husbands. And they had to march the children away to another compound and keep them separate from their mothers and fathers so that the, the communists could actually raise the children uh, from the womb, if necessary, to, um, to think like good communists. They understood the, the absolute necessity of seizing that generation and its minds and being the only influence that was allowed to form those minds. Satan understands this very well. We see it happening here with our government schools, how the kids are being indoctrinated in lockstep with some of the most <clears throat> remarkable and insane fantasies of, you know, transgenderism, of, uh, you know, climate change, and all the rest that is being foisted upon these children. So they're being, the children are now being weaponized. I mean, school systems are having children you know, take days off of school to protest now, to protest that our future is being ruined. Uh, Greta Thunberg is a prime, is, is just kind of the, the poster child for this. But there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other children really indoctrinated with this. It's exactly the, the evil of a bad education that was, is meant to basically turn the children into, uh, agents. Mm. Virtually all revolutions had to do that. Virtually all revolutions had to go to the very young because they're the ones who are the impressionable ones who can be, as it were, uh, turned into, into stooges for the revolution because they can be manipulated so easily by slogans and so on. Um, and scared. They're, they, they, they will be scared into thinking that, uh, you know, the society in which we, uh, we were born is, is the enemy. We have to overturn it and we have to create a just society. And uh, it applies to, the, it, it appeals to their pride as well as to their fears. That's why children are so, so impressionable that the communists, the Nazis, and all the rest of them, look at, look at Hitler's young, uh, youth, youth uh, corps, you know. Um, this is, this is the kind of thing that went on. In fact, I, I was taught by, uh, when I was at a university learning German, uh, to study in Innsbruck, I was actually taught by a woman who, in the middle of class, when, in our little, little group, one day talk, began talking about her time as a member of the Hitler Youth Corps for, for girls. And a look came over her face of absolute wonderment, as if to say, 
how could we have been taken in by this? She had this, she kind of drifted off for a minute, as though she, with a painful look in her eyes, as though she was thinking back to those days, and she was wondering, how could this have happened to us? But it happened to so many, so many. And these, uh, the revolutionaries know. Satan knows how to, how to accomplish this. This is the evil of a, of a bad education. And even worse, of an evil education. We're seeing that happen today so that we're left very often now to flee the modernist schools of the Novus Ordo, to flee the, the government schools, and to find a way to truly educate our children as traditional Catholics in a very hostile environment. Well, this is all very fascinating. It seems obvious, obviously that this is a uh, this is a topic that you're very concerned about. What what do you make of the idea of unschooling, which agrees with you that education is very important, but says uh, that there is a difference between education and schooling. So this idea of unschooling says essentially that um, you know all of this this rigid structure of schooling it's unnecessary it discourages uh, it discourages learning essentially and what we really should do with our children is foster in them a, a love for learning and teach them how to learn by letting them pursue what they are interested in not forcing certain subjects on them that they uh, find that, that that they take no interest in but rather letting them pursue whatever takes their fancy. How, how would you how would you rate that? Well, the notion of unschooling is kind of new to me. In fact, I just recently, very recently, had it explained to me. I wasn't even aware of the concept of unschooling. In fact, I would, as it is described to me, I would consider it like non-schooling <laughs> rather than unschooling. Because the sense of unschooling is just like unborn. It's sort of like saying, well, you're born, and then we make you unborn. We, we reverse the process. Mm -hmm. To undo something is like you did it, and now you're undoing it. And it always puzzles me that we say, well, the unborn child is that we did it, and then we undid it. So I always thought, well, it, it makes no sense to say the preborn, the child before birth, the preborn child, or maybe the non-born child, the child who wasn't born, mm -hmm. but not a child who was born and then unborn. Uh, so anyway, as far as schooling goes, I, uh, you know, when I first heard of it, I thought, so unschooling is where you put them in school, then you take them out. <laughs> so then somebody had to kind of explain to me what this meant. Is. The idea is basically let them grow up and just do what they're interested in. Okay? But it's not really teaching them to learn. It's, it's the idea, I gather, is not teaching them anything intentionally, but just letting their natural inquisitiveness uh, get them involved in things that they find intriguing and that they're curious about. So letting their own personal curiosity take over. But I would consider this also to be a matter of also letting other natural things take over. For example, perhaps laziness, right? Uh, I mean, just letting them learn whatever they feel like they want to learn in any given moment could be very dangerous. I could see a Hitler or someone like that learning all kinds of interesting things to him, right? Or a perverse mind being let... That's like that's like raising a feral child, in a way, intellectually. Intellectually feral child, without, without any direction at all. So I think this is probably not going to work. Now, there might be some 
<clears throat> children it, it, it could work with in the sense that they are naturally inquisitive, they are good-hearted souls, right? They have a certain natural virtue to them. And especially in a Catholic setting where they're learned taught as Catholics, I mean, yes, if they're, if they're being led by virtue of the faith, let's face it, they can't just discover the truths of faith by, by accident. And you can't just say to your child, well, if you're interested in the catechism, go ahead, you know, learn it. If you're not, don't worry about it. No Catholic family would say that, right? So the idea of unschooling or non-schooling cannot really apply in a Catholic family because obviously they have to learn the truths of faith and you have to teach them that, which means they have to have a book, generally speaking, like a catechism. The church produces a catechism for a reason. And um, no Catholic parent um, is this, well, I don't think Catholic parents usually are, are theologians, doctors in theology, and so on. So to be able to teach the child the faith effectively requires not only a knowledge of the catechism, but an understanding of the faith, too, to a certain extent. And so, um, you know, the idea of unschooling can't really be applied there, as far as I can see. As far as the other subject, as far as reading and math and so on, we, you know, again, you, you have to teach your child something. And, you know, a child has to learn ABCs. They just can't, you don't leave your child to figure out what, what all these symbols mean, right? No parent would do that, expect the child to catch on. That's very tedious for a child to do that. Eventually, many children would just say, well, I, these are, I, I don't care what these mean. And, in fact, in many times in the old days, kids never did, did grow up to read, right? <laughs> so we began to see the necessity of their reading, and uh, therefore teaching them the alphabet to turn letters into words and to understand the meaning of words and, and to write sentences and to understand what they're... But all of that has to be taught. It's not the kind of thing you just don't kind of discover grammar on your own, the rules of grammar. You have to have, you know, if you have a teacher or at least a book to read, but in order to read it, you have to know how to read in the first place. So somewhere along the line, there has to be education in, this, in the sense of some kind of structured format that you follow to give the child the right information. This is all part of the classical method that does require, again, the presentation of information to children. Now, there are lazy children who are intellectually lazy who don't want to learn these things at any given moment. But there are certain things we know that they need to know. And so, you, again, you just can't leave it up to the child to decide whether he wants to learn today or what he wants to learn, ever. Uh, so that, uh, part of the educational process, you said, Tom, is raising, is teaching the child's conscience. And that always involves teaching the child virtue. And virtue is always going to involve faith and hope and charity for Catholics and prudence and justice and fortitude. Well, how do you raise a child with fortitude if you never challenge a child to do what he finds difficult? But you say, well, just learn what you want. Learn what you want, when you want, as much as you want. And leave it at that. How do you teach them to do the hard things? It doesn't necessarily come natural to every child. So again, it's that discipline, which comes from, it comes from the word for teach, right? I teach. It's that discipline you have to teach the child that there are tasks that 
need to be done because they're the right thing to do, even when it's hard, maybe especially when it's hard. How does anybody who is raised as an intellectually feral child just being told, well, learn what you want, when you want, if you want, how does that child ever learn what our Lord says, if you wish to be my disciples, you must take up your cross every day and follow me, even if you don't want to do that, even if you don't feel like it? So I think it's pretty risky, and I don't even think it's possible. There are those who are probably saying, well, we're unschooling. And if you were to ask him, well, do you teach your child the, the ABCs? Well, of course I do. Well, you teach them to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, of course I teach them that. So you give them the basic information they need to learn themselves. At least in the first place, you give them the tools to learn. And they would say, well, yeah, I have to give them the tools to learn. Otherwise, how can I expect them to learn on their own? You say, exactly. So that's not really not, not unschooling. Not really. Let's face it. So um, if there were uh, such an idea as pure unschooling, then I would say that would be a crime against children. But I, I can't imagine anybody actually doing that, uh, either in principle or in practice. Mm -hmm. you know? so, um, and if they did, I think it would end in disaster. Sure. Um, well. But uh, as far as the... Uh, there's a certain element in this which has an important aspect of this, and that is, obviously, if the child is interested, then you have his attention. So if you see the child's, a child has a real interest in one subject or another, to encourage that, to provide the necessary tools, instructional materials for the child to, as it were, indulge that natural interest, as long as it's about something good and legitimate, honest and helpful, that's important for a child. So I would say there's nothing contrary to that in educational, an educational program, an educational system. That would be important in any educational system, to give the child the necessary rein, as it were, to give enough reins to the child to follow that course and to pursue their interests. Because you know that then you have their, you have that self-motivation within them to learn and uh, to, to hopefully go on to accomplish great things. Where that is restrained, where that is denied in an educational program, I would say that is also criminal. And that is also doing a, a violence to the child. Uh, the one by neglect, the other by, uh, the one by constraint and the other by restraint, uh, I think holds a child back from getting a, a real true education. Well, Father, let's move on from this to the idea of homeschooling. This is always a big topic in Catholic circles, and I don't want to get too deep into it because I, I believe we could do a whole, a whole series of shows on, uh, on this idea of homeschooling, but just Kind of in general, Father, what is the ideal schooling environment for the Catholic child? Is it a home school um, or, or is it a Catholic school? How would you compare and contrast the two? Well, the church herself has answered that question in her history because she has had the, the monasteries instructing the children, usually of the, the next generation of leaders. So, in other words, the children of the nobility, were often instructed in monasteries. Um, <clears throat> we, we talk about the clerics who were known because, well, they, they could actually read and write. 
that we in England they talk about the clerks, and the clerks go back to those who are the record keepers. You know, they could actually keep the records because they could read and write, and they could compute. Okay, these were these were considered the educated people of letters in that day. The clergyman had to be educated too, and so this whole process was entrusted, really, to the church. Um, and then you look back to the rise of the colleges and universities. I mean, you had the colleges of theology and philosophy and law and so on. Beginning, this actually process began in Paris, where they were drawn together in the university and they were united there uh, with the various disciplines. And philosophy was considered to be like the queen of the disciplines. Um, because under philosophy, you had all of the others. You know, you had all the other disciplines from mathematics to law and everything else. And all the sciences, all the sciences, astronomy and so on, it was all considered part of philosophy as a love of wisdom. <clears throat> and then theology, of course, which was, um, well, fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. So you had uh, the ability to think uh, which is natural to us in our intellectual powers, but elevated by the truths of faith. And now you, now you have theology to understand God, to understand, you know, as far as humanly possible, understand the things of God, I should say, perhaps. So the church has spoken by her history as to what she really wants given to the children. Uh, it's as though the other children were left to learn what they could from whomever they could. And most of them basically wound up learning trades and becoming craftsmen. And that's how they would ply, ply, their, ply their trade. Um, but opportunities for advancement for them were very limited because that's all they knew. And so the idea was uh, if, if you treat, well, you know, Protestantism taught <coughs> that um, Scripture alone is all we have of divine revelation. Scripture and what we can make of it they say, inspired by the Holy Ghost. But that's that gave to thousands of different sects of Protestants, each interpreting its own scriptures for itself. But I have to remember that Luther could get away with this idea of scripture alone because the printing press had been invented, um, you know, some 30, 40 years before. And uh, I guess roughly about the same time as being born. But before the invention of the printing press, books were very were rather rare. They had to be copied by hand. And they were essentially the province of the educated and the wealthy. And uh, very, very few people had copies of sacred scriptures because they had to be copied by hand. And they were copied by the Catholic monks uh, throughout the centuries. Cathedral churches, for example, would have Bibles. And, but they would be chained down to prevent them being stolen because they would put them out for the educated to read, but only the educated could read them. And uh, so the idea, once the printing press came out there, of, an, of, of increasing the readership, increasing the ability to read, and having that enter into mainstream education more and more, that opened up all kinds of possibilities and enabled uh, people in societies like ours to no longer be so much defined by the class into which they were born, or the socio-economic level into which they were born, but in making the ability to read kind of a general, a general fact, right? Um, because of the proliferation of books, 
Many of them good, some of them bad. I mean, the first book printed by Gutenberg was the Bible. That tells you a great deal about the preeminence of the scriptures, you know, uh, in the world at that time. But that's what people began, began to read, mostly. You know, this is, this is what they began to publish, publish things on the arts, philosophy, and so on. These were the great works. It was only later that they began to publish salacious novels because people could make money off them. But uh, in any case, when I say later, I don't mean, you know, centuries later. I mean, even in the 1500s, St. Therese of Avila, whose feast day it was today, talks about these evil books that fell into, her, fell into her hand when she was a child and the damage that they did, that she, she took to them. Now, they were nothing in comparison with the books that are being published today, I'm sure. Uh, but they introduced worldly ideas, and she talked about how evil they were. So already then, the devil was getting ta on top of this. He wasn't going to let this, this tool of the printing press escape him. He saw that as a means also to spread error and evil. Uh, and St. Teresa of Avila in the 1500s even spoke about this at that time. But uh, still, the corruption was not anything near what we see today. The, uh, the point of the, the whole thing is, though, that if you give the child the ability to read and you have this knowledge incorporated into books, you've given the child the, the tool to be self-motivated and learn. And learn, hopefully, what is right and good. And that means even a child born in abject poverty uh, can actually lift his mind out of that and raise his mind to noble and lofty thoughts. And we saw that happening in the clergy. Uh, we saw that the clergy wasn't made up entirely, or the hierarchy no longer made up entirely of the second-born sons of the nobility, who were automatically, you know, uh, set on the trajectory of an ecclesiastical career. We saw St. John Vianney becoming a priest and uh, a saint. And we saw a St. Joseph of Cupertino, you know, the reluctant saint, as he was called. We saw him uh, uh, rising to the heights of sanctity. You know? And we saw others in the religious life, male and female, you know, um, also motivated by a desire to learn, and in this case, especially to learn about God and um, to learn about their Savior, Jesus Christ, and uh, to learn to love God and, their, and our Lord, uh, His only begotten Son. So you have here um, the power of that ability to, to self-educate that came in with, with reading. So um, this, is, this is primarily the work of the church, though. It's primarily the work of the church. The Gutenberg Bible was not a Protestant Bible. The Gutenberg Bible was printed in the, in the mid to late 1400s before Luther ever made any impact whatsoever. And this was the work of the Catholic Church, all of this educational process. And it was all built on the classical method but it was the classical method inspired by faith. But Father, if all of this is, is true, and all, all of this reading material was made so much more readily available, and, mm -hmm. and how much more is that compounded in today's information age, where mm -hmm. information is so incredibly available, mm -hmm. uh, does this not bode well for homeschooling? You're, you're saying that, that all of this... Well, yes, it makes 
it much more possible to homeschool a child mm-hmm. and to have the child well educated. We've seen that. Uh, we've seen the product of homeschool education. I would say it's very uneven, though. And to a great extent, it depends on the motivation of the child. There's a certain amount of that unschool element in homeschool in the sense that um, the the child is is freer to learn on, at his own pace and according to his own tastes. And I've known homeschool programs. Well, first of all, I admire any parent who undertakes the homeschool, mm-hmm. the homeschooling of his or her child, because it is an enormously difficult task, taking so much time and so much effort, especially in the early years. But even then, even as the, the years progress, and the children come and they advance through their educational, and again, it is a process, because the homeschool is not unschooling. Homeschool it has to be to successful, be very regimented. All right? Many homeschool parents are very, very determined about that. We have periods of time, blocks of time during the day dedicated to this subject, these books, this material, even having desks, blackboards, and uniforms at home for the kids because they see the necessity of the discipline and the seriousness of it all, that they want their children to take it seriously. And they realize that all of these things, the desk, the dedicated space, the dedicated time, even the uniform, contribute to a sense of the seriousness and the importance of what we're doing here. So, um, you know, that certain regimentation is, in, is indispensable. It's really necessary. Um, obviously, it can be exaggerated to the point of being an obstacle. Mm-hmm. But there has to be some program or some discipline that is followed. It just has to be. But you're right. The printed word now makes it possible for parents to have the books necessary where they can teach their children. But, uh, you know, most parents cannot teach their children advanced math. Most children cannot teach their uh, children like the elevated sciences. Uh, They just don't have the background themselves or the resources the, the lab sciences and so on, they don't. But what they really can do is they can inspire their children with a, a, a love for learning, as you mentioned, and a real healthy curiosity to know more, a desire to, to, to know more. Once they teach the children how to read, that can work very well, that the child then needs less and less and less instruction from the parent because now the child's natural impetus uh, takes over, almost like inertia, but something is in motion. It's hard to get something move, uh, stationary to begin moving. But once you get it moving, right, that, that um, the impetus that is driving it forward um, can keep it, keep it going and keep it on track, and it can even accelerate the learning process as the child himself wants to learn more and more and more. That's a good thing, but not all children do that. And so we've seen in the homeschooling programs, we've seen children who are, uh, we've seen children who came through very well and children who didn't, depending on the, the, the character of the child. Uh, then you get a parent who has a child, say, who's six years old and eight years old and 10 years old, and, and you have this vast range. The parent is trying to teach all of these at once. 
And the little ones need so much attention because they have not yet learned how to educate themselves. Um, so it becomes almost overwhelming. But in every successful homeschooling program, we've seen certain characteristics. The father and the mother were both of educators in their mentality, and they worked together, and they cooperated together. It didn't fall entirely on one or the other. They had to support each other, and they both had to have a united front in, in inculcating in the child the, the, the idea that this is important, and uh, that this is a, not only a good thing, but this is a wonderful thing, and you should um, have a certain passion for this. Enlist your passions, get them behind your intellect and your will to drive you forward in the learning process. Again, it can be very successful for some children, not so successful for other children. It can be very successful for some families, not so successful for others. Um, because it takes such an enormous dedication of time and effort. And I would say that some of the best educated children I've known have come from homeschool programs. And some of those who are continu continually, you know, year after year, winning the Scripps uh, National Spelling Competition and so on, are come from homeschool, homeschool backgrounds. You know, but these are highly motivated children. And Father, another aspect that I think is important to consider when contrasting homeschooling with uh, with true Catholic schooling is the the lack in the homeschooling setting is the lack of uh, daily mass. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a truly Catholic school, Father, the children will will be educated by by religious by, by priests and nuns and, and sisters and. They will also have the daily mass and, and prayers with their with their priests and religious and fellow students. So that that's one thing to consider when when comparing and weighing the, the pros and cons of homeschooling versus Catholic education. But Father, how would you answer this charge? I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before that in a a Catholic school there is almost there can be too much religion with this daily mass and and the morning prayers and and all of this that is constantly happening. How would you how would you respond to some who say that this is too much religion? It totally overwhelms the students, and it actually uh, influences the students to end up despising religion and have a cultivate some kind of disdain for religion just because they have so much of it every single day. How would you answer mm -hmm. that charge? I I would say I disagree with it. Okay, I think that uh, it contains a very bad idea at its foundation. Okay. Um, now, having said that, I say it could have that effect. It could have that effect, but I, I think if it does have that effect, it's because of a combination of factors. And one of them is the child himself or herself just doesn't like to be confined, doesn't like to be restrained, doesn't like the just what it takes to be at last. Um... You know, some children take more readily to Mass than others. In the same family, you might have one brother who's very pious. And you would think he's almost naturally pious. He goes to Mass and when he's young, he's think he's reading the little book and he, he's taught, thinking about Jesus. And, and uh, his younger brother might be just completely the opposite. Like, let's get out of here. You know, he can't, st he can't sit still for a minute. He wants to get out of here. Because it's boring, right? <laughs> so another, again, might find this very interesting and intriguing, and it might draw him in. And the and his own younger brother, who might be just, you know, a, a year behind him, 
finds it the most boring and intolerable thing, uh, and he's absolutely not engaged in it. So in the same family, I mean, you can see this great contrast here. I'd say that's one factor. I'd say another factor is the parents themselves. If the parents themselves convey this idea to the child. Now, the parents might themselves be very pious and think, well, I'd really like to go to Mass myself, and I think it's important and all that. But if the parents indulge the idea of a child doesn't like to go to Mass, well, we can't, we can't expect them to do that. You know? Well, how do they ever teach their two-year-old and three-year-old to begin to, you know, conduct themselves well at Mass? If they have that idea, if the child resists this, then if we force them to learn to genuflect and kneel down and be still, read their prayer books, that they're going to necessarily wind up hating it. So we can't require this of them. Uh, I would say that doesn't help the child who has a natural aversion. It indulges a problem, even encourages it. And uh, not only that, but it also signals the child what is, what is important. And this, I think, is, is most significant. Um, that if the children, um, the children have to learn from their parents what has priority. The children have to learn, and the parents have to teach them what, what the priority is in their life. You know? And if the parents <clears throat> indulge the child's priorities, instead of teaching the child, look, this is, this is a priority. This should be your priority. This is our priority. Okay, we want you to be there. We want you to be at Mass. And this is why. And to help the child understand why it is so important. Look, how many, how many children will raise, how many parents will raise their children? Say, well, we can't teach the child anything in his early years because he doesn't have the use of reason. And the child doesn't want to learn how to sit still. The child doesn't want to learn how not to throw his food, how to share his toys. The child doesn't want to learn. So we, we have to let the child go and be natural until the child reaches the edge of reason. And we'll explain to the child at that point why you shouldn't, you know, push your, your little boy next to her down when he, you know, just because you feel like it. Or to go and take his toys away because you want to play with them. Or, in other words... You, as a parent, teach your children good habits before they understand why. I hope, right? I know you do, Tom. Try to. So that when they reach the age of reason, they'll have all these good habits formed. And now they'll understand the reason for them when they already know how to behave themselves. The child who has all these bad habits formed because the parent decided, well, let the child take his natural bend. And that's true of Mass and the sacraments. If you just say, well, let's not, you know, uh, try to impose upon the child our understanding of how important things are by saying we really want this of you, we expect this of you, we're putting you in a school where they do these things so that you will learn to do these things. A parent who, who says the child, our child doesn't want that, so we can't make him, we, we can't expect that of him, is basically telling the child, look, this is not the priority. Our priorities are not your priorities. You have your own priorities. And they are the priorities of a, of a six-year-old, of an eight-year-old, of a ten-year-old. And that is what has to predominate. That is going to dictate to us what we should expect of you. That's a very big mistake. 
Now, Father Drew and I travel a lot, as you know, and virtually every every Saturday, Sunday, Monday, sometimes Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Mondays, we are traveling. And uh, at our advanced ages, it's difficult. We've been doing this for many years now to take the Mass and the sacraments to people all over. Um, and um, we come back and we make it a priority to have Mass at our school for the students every day we can. That's hard on us. I don't think the students realize that it's very difficult for us to orient our lives around that. But we do orient our lives around getting the Mass to them. It would be so much easier for us just to set our own schedule to our own convenience. And whether or not they have Mass or not, making that a secondary or a third, a tertiary consideration, that would really, really make life a lot easier for us. We don't do that. Even though others have been saying, oh, you know, we hear once in a while, uh, having Mass every day is bad for the kids because, you know, then they don't appreciate it. Familiarity breeds contempt. And say, well, okay, you, you quote that statement as though it was some kind of a uh, divine revelation. But the fact is, uh, that would mean that husbands and wives should see as little of each other as possible. Mm. And uh, you should see as little of your children as possible, okay? And your children should see as little of you as possible. The more, the more they see you, the more familiar, the, more, the less they respect you. So obviously, this does not have universal application, right? <laughs> and um, there are other children, obviously, where that isn't true. There are some in which that may that might apply. But I think they're encouraged to think like that. And I don't think they're really given the understanding they need to have to appreciate the significance of what the Mass is. I, I hope we're doing that at the Academy. I don't know that we can. We try to teach them that. But not all of them are willing to learn. The fact is, though, that even the students who don't learn, while they, well, they're students of ours, Hopefully, as they get out in life, and they, they will learn the right priorities, because they'll remember what our priorities were. And hopefully, they'll become mature enough to suddenly, or slowly, come to an appreciation for our priorities, and why we considered it so important. But if we don't make those our priorities now, and we don't give them that example now, what will they have to learn from, you know? So the, my point to the parents is, as far as the religion, we only have a short time in order to give them a knowledge and a love of their faith, a knowledge and a love for God. We have a very short time to do that. If those are not our priorities, they will know that. And they will not be their priorities either, for the most part. Uh, if they don't learn it from us, they'll either have to learn it from somebody else, and all too often, the priorities they learn from others are not good. Mm -hmm. So we have to give them the example of what the true priority should be. If those are the priorities of the parent, that is faith, hope, and charity, and the knowledge of our faith, the practice of our faith, if those are the priorities of the parents, then the parents have to instruct the children in those priorities and why they are our priorities. And there are children who will gladly learn from them, and they will adopt those priorities also. But some won't. Inevitably, maybe many, maybe most of the children won't see that because they're children, and they're still learning. And they get out of the school, they leave your home, they're still learning. 
we hope, we pray, they're still learning. And in the course of time, we trust that they will come by the grace of God to an understanding of why our priorities were what they were. And that they will begin to think more and more, as we do, and appreciate more and more the Mass and the Sacraments, and understand the sacrifices that are made for them by Father Greenwell, myself, in getting Mass for them, and enabling them to receive our Lord in, in the Blessed Sacrament, as St. Pius X wanted them to, um, as he saw it was necessary for them to receive, having the availability of confession and absolution. Yes, they may have them readily available at school, as they do, and then they get out of school, and now they have to do it for themselves. Well, if they learn those priorities, and they can maintain them when they get out of school and they have other, other things to do, then they will be back at confession, and they will be receiving absolution and practicing their faith. But, of course, the world being what it is, you know, is a great distraction. But um, this is the only hope I have, really, uh, other than some... Uh, stroke of grace by God, that they will ever return. We have, in other words, they may stray and they may wander, but they need to know the way home. And we have to teach them the way home so that no matter where they go or how much trouble they get themselves into or how far away they get from their faith and from their Lord, they eventually discover that they can't get far from him because the Blessed Mother and our Lord are always watching over them. So no matter where in life uh, the years take them, they know the way home, okay? And hopefully they'll find their way back there. If we don't give that to them now, the way things are going in the world, well, if we, if we don't give them a knowledge of the way home, then they're, they're, they'll, they'll be lost. And I'm afraid that's, that's the problem we have with so many um, children who have no instruction in the faith, they don't know the truths of the faith, like in the modernist schools of the Vat of Novus Ordo, Vatican II, uh, children who are raised in public schools who never learn their faith, they do not know the way home. This is the sad part for them. So, in any case, I would just tell parents, look, if you give the grace of God a chance to work, you know, Give your children an opportunity here. They may resist it now, but the grace of God is still there, and our Blessed Mother has her influence, uh, and they will, they'll find their way home. Father, if I may, I'd like to end with one final question. I know this has been a rather lengthy program already, but uh, if we could perhaps get through this final point really quickly. Uh, you, you've spoken a lot about individual students and their parents and the relationship between the students and the parents. But what about the students' relationship with other students with their peers and fellow classmates because one one charge that uh, one frequently hears against Catholic schooling in that that educational setting is that there are a lot of unnecessary bad influences upon Catholic children in in these schools that could very easily be avoided by homeschooling uh, many uh, students in Catholic schools perhaps sometimes will come from uh, broken families where the mother and father are, are, are separated or perhaps were never even married um, and other situations like that. And when a young Catholic child from a traditional Catholic family is, is hanging around their fellow students like this, they will 
see all of, all of these, they'll hear their fellow classmates talking about these uh, broken homes or, or other things like that. And it, it's just an unnecessary bad influence that could very easily be avoided by keeping that child home in a homeschooling setting. How would you reply to that? Well, it is true. I mean, a bad companion can do a lot of damage, right? And in a school setting where you have the children of multiple different families all gathering together in a classroom, interacting with each other at lunch and on the playground and so on, then if one child is home watching a television program or goes and sees a movie that should never be seen you know, by anybody, and they bring in that, they track that in here and they, they're talking to the other students about it, that's a very bad thing. And I would agree, that's not something a parent would want, and that's something, nothing we would want either. So we, we try to maintain a certain amount of control over that, but we find that it's impossible to ex- exclude that entirely. So I would say a parent who is afraid of that has reason to be concerned about that and should, should be very vigilant about that. But the problem, in, in theory, Tom, homeschooling um, eliminates that problem, no. Homeschooling minimizes the problem. You look, at, you look at homeschool families and you find often there are, all too often, there are children who don't fit into that. You know, the parents think, well, we're going to teach our child, child at home. So the child will grow up to have all the virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, and especially faith, hope, and charity, and uh, all of the other virtues that are included within prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. So my child under justice will be pious toward God, will be obedient and respectful toward me and all legitimate authority. And we have this idea that this is necessarily going to happen in a homeschool environment. And you know what? It doesn't. You see cases where children who are homeschooled are rebellious. And even resentful, resentful of what they were kept from, friends and so on. And I don't know how many you know, but as I travel around the missions, I I see that and I hear from them. So you may have, uh, you know, half a dozen children who are raised in the same homeschool with the same parents. And, uh, you know, one, two, three of them may be very uh, rebellious and resentful and, uh, and so on. There's no, there's no guarantee about this thing. Why? Well, because in the first place, they're all conceived with original sin. Baptism takes away the guilt of original sin, but it doesn't take away the consequences of original sin. And so you you get one child who's very, shall we say, placid and cooperative, um, and you get another child who's very fiery temperament and very uh, self-willed, you know, you got a very strong-willed child who can't be restrained very easily. You got another child you just wish you would get motivated. It's hard to motivate the child. You know, this is in the same family. You get this variety, and it means that in a homeschool environment, I mean, there are challenges there that go far beyond go far beyond math and 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 English and science, <laughs> um, informing these children their intellects and their wills. Um, that's like the ultimate, what the, the church called the ars artium, the art of arts. It's the formation of the soul of this child, especially the intelligence and the will. 
And so uh, there's no magic formula regarding homeschool. Not only that, but homeschoolers have relatives. And they still have their friends. And so many of these homeschooled families have their, have their kids enrolled in sports teams. And so they're, they're getting in these sports teams, which might well be you know, non-religious or maybe even non-Catholic religious programs. But they're mixing the kids with that. Yeah. And these kids are, are getting, uh, they're, they're bumping into all these things when they go to the, when they go to the mall together, you know, um, they get together in their scout troops or whatever they have. I mean, they're, they're getting, they're getting into these situations. So the parents who say, well, we can't send them to, uh, let's say a traditional Catholic school because they'll be mixing with all these other kids. And some of these kids, uh, don't have the same standards that we do, and they're going to be tracking something into the school that we know is, is toxic and bad for our student. But their children are running into these things where they go. They they may even uh, they may not get their children cell phones, but the child is is a buddy with somebody down the street who does have cell phone and internet connectivity with the cell phone. And so their kids are hearing these things and learning from these things. And in my in my um, <coughs> experience. Often the homeschool parents are very oblivious, like blissfully unaware of what their children are even doing on the internet in their own homes, in their own homes. And they are in denial. They have no idea. So I don't, I don't really put a lot of stock in that idea because I've seen what happens here. Because my, my thought on the subject is this, okay. You have to pretty much take it for granted unless you live on the moon. And even there now, I mean, we're visiting the moon. Um, let's say uh, Neptune, okay? Unless you're living on Neptune, far beyond the reach of our spacecraft, <coughs> Your children are going to be seeing and hearing things that are going to be kind of shocking to you, regardless of whether they come, let's say, to our school or, or have, they're on a, a football or basketball team with some other program somewhere, or baseball team, or even going down the block to visit uh, their buddy Herbie or their you know, friend Kunagunda. They're going to hear things, they're going to be exposed to things, and they're going to be involved in things that you're trying to keep them from being exposed to. But the important thing is you need the church and the school to be working with you. When they are exposed to these things, you want a church and a school working together on these things. Not just to be off on your own, hoping that you, you know, your radar works and you can find out, gee, my, my boy is coming back from here and what they were doing down there was they were, they were on the internet down at my friend's home because his parents let them do that. Or even the traditional Catholic parents in the school let them do it. The traditional Catholic parents in the parish, even some of them. The kids go on and do these things. Maybe their parents don't know. Maybe they're not vigilant. So a, ch a parent may be very vigilant in his own home, but let his kid go, child go off and visit somebody else in the parish, and their parents are not, are not that vigilant. Or that maybe their child is more crafty <laughs> and knows ways to get around them. And the parents, parent A, those parents are not aware of that. They're just naive, naively unaware of that. You know? But when 
the children are exposed to these things as we try not to let them be exposed here, and but try as we might, whether in the home, even in homeschooling situations or in the school, try as we might, they're going to be exposed to these things. But when they are, we have we have to get together and work on it and deal with it together. So, so uh, the parents are actually denying themselves an important ally, I think, in keeping them out of school. When things do go wrong, as inevitably they will, <clears throat> the influence that can help them would be the priests, the religious. And the parents have not really included that in the lives often of their homeschooling children. To whom the priests and religious are basically can be strangers. You know? mm -hmm. um, so, yes, there can be a bad influence. And yes, there will be bad influences at a traditional Catholic school, too. But there will also be good influences as well to counterbalance that. The Mass, the sacraments, the religion class, and all the rest, too. And to deny the child that, I think, is a big mistake. Even if a child goes through a homeschooling program uh, and, and uh, that works out very well for the particular child, I still think there are things that the child could have gotten in the traditional Catholic school, other than the flu and measles, <laughs> that uh, could be very beneficial, that child. Um, you see, uh, to put a cap on this, okay, and I know this is supposed to be the last question, but the way the child's conscience is formed is not by preventing the child from ever encountering anything that challenges the conscience. Uh, and keeping the child from all temptation. You can't. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? Well, the devil has ways of getting in. Uh, and, you, you know, there's, there's no insulation necessarily. You just have to form the child's conscience well enough to resist him. The world around you is going to seep in one way or another sooner or later. And you can't just raise a child in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a bubble and then expect that that bubble is never going to be permeated by anything. If the child hasn't been exposed to these things by the time he's 16, 17, 18 years old, the child's going to be exposed to these things. Hey, he's going to get out and get a job working at Chick-fil-A. He's going to find things, even at Chick-fil-A. Okay? They're going to see and hear things, of course. Yes. You know? So... What we have to do is not, we have to shelter the child from anything that he's not prepared for. But our job is to prepare him for it. Because inevitably he's going to encounter it. At some time he's going to encounter it. And so, even if the child hasn't been exposed to him yet, he will be. We've got to count on that, the world being what it is today. So we have to prepare that child for that moment, to build up that conscience. And to make that conscience so strongly devoted to our Lord um, and love, love is Savior so much, to believe so firmly in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost that that, that child's um, knowledge of God and love for God would be great enough. Not that it's invincible, not that that child can never sin, but that if the child does fall, that the child, again, will know what to do about that and will be motivated 
by that love for God that it seemed to have lost for a moment, to restore that and to go and to seek forgiveness, uh, absolution, and to be restored to grace again. So, um, you know, every parent's nightmare is having one of their children get to be 16, 17, 18 years old, 18 years old, with all of the freedoms and initiatives that come. And, and the child, the parent realizes, I cannot trust my son. I cannot trust my daughter. When my son or my daughter leave here with their friends, I don't know what they're doing. I can't believe what he tells me. I can't trust him. That's a terrible feeling. And every, every parent's desire and job is to raise the child to get to that age where they have more and more liberties, but they also have more and more virtue. And so the parent can say, I trust my son. I trust my daughter. And I, I know they're people like me. They're fallible. They can make mistakes. And they're weakness. They can fall. And I know that's... But my job is to help them get up again and be stronger for it. And what I want is my son or my daughter to be fully formed by the time that they, they get to the age that leave my home. I trust them now to be able to do what is right, to face the world as it is, and to be able not to be dominated by it, but to make the right decisions for God, family, country. That's what every parent wants. Can that be accomplished in the homeschool program? For certain people, for certain children, it can be. In certain families, it can be. Uh, Again, can it be accomplished in the traditional Catholic school environment? Yes, it, it's, it certainly can be. Uh, but there's no foolproof program. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have to work at it and do the very best we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, not every parent is suited to the homeschool rigors. Not every child is. Um, but there are certain ones who do thrive under those circumstances, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I say more power to them. By the way, you know, sometimes sometimes they get this kind of clannish idea that, well, you know, you get the school children and you get the non-school, the school children and the homeschool children. We always try to include the homeschool children in everything we do. We invite them to our days of recollection. I mean, they're members of our parish. They're our children, too, no less than the, the children in school. I consider them all our children. And we invite them to the days of recollection. We invite them to be on our sports teams. Uh, we're delighted to have them here to take part in our programs. So um, I, I don't like this idea of, well, they're homeschoolers and they're not really, but, you know, Catholics. They're not really <laughs> traditional Catholics. They're not really members of the parish. Mm-hmm. Or the school children thinking of them, the homeschoolers that way. Or the, school, the homeschool children thinking, well, they're going to that school where they're rubbing elbows with all of these all of these sinners, you know. And so we're we're much better than they are. That sort of um, mentality has no place in any traditional Catholic parish these days, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, that's a, that's a question that comes up sometimes too. Yes, right? you didn't ask that one. No, no Father. <laughs> I thought I'd save you the trouble. In the interest of time, I did not ask that question. <laughs> right. But, uh, well, well, Father, thank you for all this. Thank you for your insight and wisdom. I think this is a fascinating topic. I know it's definitely relevant, definitely pertinent. So, uh, thank you. Well, this is where the battle is being fought, you know, for the world, 
of this coming generation right now. And so this is a battle we have to win. It takes a lot of sacrifice and perseverance. Thanks be to God. The graces are there. That's right. Well, thank you, Father. Appreciate it. Certainly, Tom. Thank you. Thanks to all our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and also to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.